Uh, well, today we get to begin a new series called Jesus Greater Than. Anybody getting flashbacks to math class right now that are making you slightly nervous and uncomfortable? Hives starting to appear in places you didn't remember that you could get hives? Well, if you're not comfortable with your math signs, here's a little tutorial. 67 is less than 76, and 8 is greater than 3. And here's why that matters. If you're bigger, the alligator's going to eat you. That's just the simple reality of math, folks. I don't know if you realize this, but the bigger you are, the more you're going to get eaten by the alligator. If you're smaller, you can run away. So there it is. It's just math. Uh, we're going to be doing this series called Jesus Greater Than over the next couple of months. It'll be a look in the Gospel of Mark at the life of Jesus and kind of the impact that that has on us as his followers. We're going to talk about things that Jesus is greater than, like our non-belief, our timing, problems, fears, culture, wallets, and of course, you and me, because he's greater than all those things. But you know, the difficulty with this concept is that sometimes it can be difficult to truly believe and buy into the fact that Jesus is greater than all of those things and a host of others, because we're all too aware of how big those are in our lives. And I think one reason for that is that we're just a little too easily satisfied with finding what we deem to be an easier answer. We're constantly searching for that. We're constantly looking for ways to get what it is that we want without having to do what somebody else tells us that we have to do. We settle for distractions instead of looking for what's real. We settle for shallow relationships instead of going for deeper relationships because we don't want to deal with the unnecessary risks and the potential hurt and frustration that come along with deeper relationships. We settle for addictions because it seems easier in the moment than dealing what's at the core of our pain and our anxiety and what it is that we're dealing with. We deal with, we settle for all of these things. We're constantly looking for what's popular and what's easy because, well, it's popular and easy and who doesn't like that? We, we think that we can find a shortcut constantly and we are forever looking for those shortcuts. But the irony is, of course, if you've tried this route before, that at the end of the day, it's actually faster and, and better if you just follow Jesus from the beginning instead of trying all those other things on your own. But we want to do things our way. If you were ever 20, you understand this. And we were all 20 once. And so I can assume that we all understand it. One author talked about his experience of electricity coming to his rural neighborhood. Obviously, this was a few, few years ago. This wasn't a, a current uh, thing that he was talking about. But he was talking about the process of seeing it come in. He remembered the power lines being strung along his road. He remembered the electricians coming in and tearing up his house and adding all these wires everywhere. He remembered the joy that he found at doing these really mundane things like flipping a light switch instead of lighting a candle or a kerosene lighter. He remembered all of that that came when his house was lit up and ready to go. And he remembered going to a friend's house one weekend. And that friend was in his town. 
But they had chosen not to get electricity. They still did everything the old way, the way that he was now way beyond in his couple of weeks of having power in his house. They still lit lamps and lanterns. They still used rug beaters and ice chests and all of that fun stuff that takes so much more effort than the ways that we do it today with our appliances. And he kept asking his friend, every time that they would do something like that, he's like, why don't you guys get electricity? It's so easy. Like, and it's so much better. You know how much time that you can create, time that you can go play if you just talk your parents into doing this thing? And his friend's family just wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't trust it. They had no room for it. They thought it was too big of a hassle. They thought that in the end of the day, it just would not be worth it. Too much money, too much time, too much effort. Let's just keep doing things the way that we've been doing them forever. Our way is better. The way that we've experienced is what counts in our book. I don't believe that it's actually going to be better if I do something this other way. And in Mark 1.27, we're told that after Jesus began his ministry, that amazement gripped the people and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they asked. It has such authority, even evil spirits obey his orders. When Jesus came on the scene, it was obvious that he was a good teacher and that he knew something that other people didn't know. He was better than your average teacher of the Bible. He knew something a little bit extra. It was obvious that he was different. But when they saw him pray, when they saw him heal people, when they saw him quiet a bunch of demons, then all of a sudden they started to think, okay, maybe there's more than just something different about this guy. Now that I've experienced something, now I'll start to take it another step further. Maybe there is something going on here that's outside of what we've experienced before, that's outside of our norm. They believed and they were amazed. And I think like in all of these situations that we are constantly posed with this question in the same way that those few who heard Jesus teach the first time. Do we really believe that Jesus is greater than the other options that are in our life? Do we really believe that? And maybe even more importantly, if so, if we believe that, how is that changing our lives? How is that affecting us day in and day out. Because we can believe that life is better, that hypothetically everything will be better if we have electricity and indoor plumbing. But as people still prove today, you can choose to live in a house that doesn't have electricity and that has an outhouse. Why? I have no idea, but people still do it. You can choose that and still hypothetically, hypothetically believe that it's better the other way. And in the same way, I think that we can hypothetically believe, have an understanding that Jesus is better, that he's greater than the other things in our life, than the other options. And yet, we don't experience that. We don't live that out. So the questions for us are, have we experienced the true joy, happiness, and fulfillment that we can find in Jesus? Are we willing to be compelled by Jesus? Are we willing to let his authority be the ultimate authority in our lives? Are we willing to fully let Jesus be greater than anything else in our lives? Are we willing to let 
those words become our actual experience to take a step forward with that. And I encourage you over the course of this series to keep asking yourself that question. Is there anything in my life that's greater than Jesus? I'm not asking if you believe in, Je- in Jesus. I'm asking if there's still something in your life that's greater than him. Because that can happen really easily because we're all too aware of the things that loom large in our lives that we feel the pressure of at much greater levels than we feel the pressure of Jesus at times. Keep asking that question of yourself over the next couple of months. Will you pray with me as we begin this morning? Jesus, we just thank you for your presence. I thank you for being here with us. Thank you for what you're wanting to do here today. And I just ask for you, Holy Spirit, to come right now to fall on us, to speak to us clearly, to speak to each one of us clearly what it is that you're wanting to say to our hearts. Make us aware of you. Make us aware of the things that you're wanting to have control over in our lives, that you're wanting to show your authority and your power over the things that we worry that you're not greater than. Speak to us clearly about that. Reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 1. We have Bibles on the sides and in the back that you can feel free to grab at any time. We're just going to read three short verses, an easy one today. So Mark 1, 14 and 15, and then 27. It says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they believe him. The author of this gospel, Mark, is kind of an interesting guy. Uh, He's not the most polished of the people that we meet in the New Testament. Uh, He took a lot of his stories from Peter. Peter's pretty dominant predominant figure in this gospel. And I think part of that was because Mark could relate to some of Peter's uh, faults, we'll say, his, his gaffes at times in, uh, in the way that he followed Jesus. Mark was, uh, his mom was pretty influential. She was often the host for the disciples, the followers of Jesus. It was at her house that the disciples were meeting when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, who was his cousin, and on their first missionary journey, and when he was traveling with them about halfway through, he got a little homesick, and so then he went home, and that created all kinds of issues uh, between Paul and Barnabas. Paul did not have much uh, sympathy for uh, getting homesick, so he was a little angry about that. He needed to grow up a little. Uh, Mark never names himself in the gospel, but he does tell us one really interesting fact that we've since learned is autobiographical. It's in chapter 14. It's right after Jesus was arrested. We're told that there is a young man who was following Jesus. It says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Yikes. 
That's quite the, the autobiographical uh, addition to throw in there, right? How many of us would willingly toss that one in our book that we're writing? Like, great, let's, the only time I'm going to mention myself is this humongously embarrassing uh, thing that happened to me that everybody saw because I was naked, you know. Uh, but I, I kind of appreciate that. I subscribe to the same theory that I think Mark does here. He, would, he didn't want Matthew or John to out him. He didn't want them to be able to say that. He figured, you know, it's better if I say this. I just kind of come out with it, you know, and then it's out there and I can laugh about it at the same time. I, I introduce it on my own terms instead of waiting for somebody else to embarrass me. I appreciate that. That's a good way of doing it. I, I do that to myself because there's lots of embarrassing stories and pictures of me from my childhood. And so I'm very, very comfortable in throwing it out there way before anybody could ever find out. I think Sarah saw some of those pictures way before she ever should have when we were dating. But hey, it's easier that way. <laughs> takes, takes the punch out of my parents showing it, right? Uh, but Mark, he, he's an interesting author. He's super focused. He's fast-paced. He's constantly moving. He's kind of abrupt. He doesn't waste words at all. He, he's, act, he's constantly acting very decisively in his movements. He's telling you a story, but he's telling you the slightly abridged version at the same time. The other authors of the Gospels were really focused on talking about Jesus' teaching. They got, John got super flowery. Matthew tells us like the long version of the sermon, not the shorter version. Luke's worried about convincing Gentiles. Matthew wants to convince Jews. Mark is just simply focused on telling us who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus is the son of God and he's moving. He's acting in our world and the kingdom of God is growing, period. Next. He keeps it moving constantly. And he tells us here Jesus' vision statement. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Like I said, this is Jesus' vision statement. And we'll find out later that it's the vision statement for us as the church. It's what we're supposed to be sharing with other people. That the kingdom of God has come. We're supposed to repent and believe. That's our next steps after we hear that message from Jesus. And in typical Mark fashion, he does not waste a single word. It's clear, it's concise, and it's captivating. He grabs a hold of us with it. The Israelites had been waiting for this message for a long time. There's a lot of ink and words spilled in the Old Testament about this kingdom that God was going to build. They talked about it constantly. This kingdom that was going to come, that was ruled with power, that was ruled with righteousness, with humility, with justice, that was ruled with integrity. A kingdom that was ruled by God, that was more powerful than any other kingdom in the world, any other governmental system in the world. And it will be ruled by God simply because he's the only one who doesn't fail. He's infallible. Unlike humans who are going to fail every time when given the chance, we'll do something that messes up. God will not. God keeps straight on that. He doesn't sin. He doesn't fail us. It'll be ruled by him and it'll be never ending. And here Jesus tells us that that kingdom has come. The time has come and the kingdom of God is near. 
Does that seem a little off to you? The time is now, it's come, yet the kingdom is near. Those two words do not mean the same thing. Now and near are different. How many of you raise teenagers? Give me a little, little hand if you raise teenagers. How many of you were a teenager who may have done one or two bad things in your life? Okay, more hands on that one, yep. Um, it's just like I figured. So, if you got a text from your parents saying that you were out past your curfew, you should have been home an hour ago, and you need to be home now, you're very aware of what that means, right? The implication behind that. That doesn't mean five minutes from now. That means immediately you need to be walking through that door. And if you text back and you say, okay, great, well, I'm nearby, what's that mean? That means potentially 20 minutes. 20 minutes filled with going through every emotion that you can possibly go through. 20 minutes filled with your parents, thinking through every type of discipline that they could possibly give to you, (laughs) and then reworking it a little bit, and then kind of perfecting it. 20 minutes of perfection on the thing that's going to ruin your summer. 20 minutes, and 20 minutes of you driving, being like, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, knowing that when you get home, it's not going to be good. The difference between now and near can be a long 20 minutes, to say the least. There's something different in those two words. And here we come to one of the the kind of hardest parts of this message of the kingdom of God that we're faced with as people who still live in that time between now and near, the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, that we are all too aware of the goodness that Jesus has brought into our world, that he's brought something that has power, that he's brought something that changes us, that has changed many of us, that's affected our lives, that's affected people that we love, that's done so much good, that's brought healing, that's brought freedom. And yet, we're also really painfully aware that we still got 20 minutes on the clock that not everything's lining up with how it'll be in the end, that there's still some gaps there. And we feel every minute of those 20 minutes. We feel the pain. We feel the heartbreak. We feel the sickness. We know what death is. We're very well aware that we're still in that in-between period. And so we look forward excitedly, expectantly, anxiously awaiting what is to come. When Jesus is going to return the second time, when God's rule will be brought in fullness and completion to our world, where it will be the main rule and kingdom that is known throughout the world. We wait for that with expectation, knowing that God is doing something good in our world today still, but knowing that we're really going to be excited when that 20 minutes is up and when he returns finally, when the kingdom of God is now and not just near. We're waiting. We're waiting for him to return. And then he tells us to do two things. He tells us that our response to this good news is to do two things, repent and believe. 
Repentance, I think, in a moment of total vulnerability and honesty, which doesn't happen all the time for all of us, but in those moments, we could all admit that like, there's something refreshing about admitting that we do bad things, that we've screwed up, and asking for an apology. Apologizing for what, what we've done. Throwing it out there, saying, I know that I have done these wrong things. There's something kind of freeing about that. We can, we can connect with that, I think. But belief takes it another step. Belief isn't just something that can be kind of like, ah, I feel good about that. Belief requires us to do something, to step forward into something. Believe in Jesus and his kingdom. Believe that that is the ultimate power. Believe that Jesus is truly greater than all the options, that he's greater than your own personal ideals, hopes, and expectations. Believe in that reality. One theologian said that this is not a momentary one-time decision that has little, if any, lasting effect. This is a life-altering change, a radical transformation of our life orientation. A king has arrived who demands that we follow and radically obey him. This is a life-altering change, a radical transformation. Belief requires something of us. It takes us one more step that sometimes we're uncomfortable going because I think that most of us, if not all of us, are not naturally bent towards trusting other people on something that we haven't experienced for ourselves. Sure, we'll trust somebody when they're talking about something that we've experienced, that we've gone through. But when they're telling us something new, it's hard for us to buy into it. Don't believe me? pun intended. About 10 years ago, uh, I was living with four other guys, and uh, we hosted a small group in our house that had dinner as kind of part of the night, which meant that there was a ton of cleanup and trash at the end of the night. And true to form, the other four guys did not care too much about leaving that sitting around for the next 12 to 24 hours. Whereas I did, the stench did bother me and I could not handle it. So I was the cleaner. That was, that was just my role in it simply because I was the only one that couldn't outlast everybody else. So every Thursday night, I would start cleaning up after people left. And part of that was taking out the trash because again, the smell, nothing else needs to be said, right? So every Thursday night I would do this and our trash can was in our uh, backyard it was, we didn't have any floodlights. We didn't have porch lights back there because for some reason our landlord just didn't think that we needed those. Uh, unnecessary things, right? Uh, just extra flash. So we'd always take out the trash in the dark. So one Thursday night I go out there, take the trash, lift up the lid, let go of the trash bag. As soon as I let go of that trash bag, a raccoon jumps up, runs along my arm and jumps off my shoulder. And I did at that point what every single one of you would do. I screamed loud and then I ran, I hauled, I got out of there, ran inside, still probably a little scream going on as I'm running, get inside. My roommates all come out. They're like, what in the world is going on? What just happened? So I told them, they're just sitting there like, 
Oh, uh-huh, right, yeah. So a raccoon just jumped off your arm. That's cute, that's nice, right. That, that's exactly what happened. Didn't believe me in the least. They just thought I was making it all up. I'm like, what in my life has told you that I want to make this up? <laughs> like, nothing about this sounds fun to me. They wouldn't believe me. So the next week goes by. It's Thursday again. And I'm like nonchalantly like, hey guys, who else wants to take out the trash? Not really looking forward to it tonight. Uh, nobody. So I take it out and I go out there and I bang that trash can against the wall. I shake it. Then I start kicking it. I keep going. You know, I got to make sure that raccoon's out. I don't want it still jumping on me. So I pick up my trash, satisfied that nothing's in there because I've done enough. I let go of the trash bag. No lie. What happens? A raccoon jumps out, runs along my arm, and jumps off my shoulder. You know what I do this time? I scream and I run. Because again, that's what any sane person does. There's no other options to this. So I run inside. Oh, again, all my roommates come out and they're like, man, what is going on? And I told them, like, that raccoon is coming after me. Like, I'm surprised I don't have like a chunk bitten out of my ear, that I don't have rabies, like that I didn't die just now. And it's all your fault. And they just look at me and they're like, man, that's really weird. What are the thoughts? Like, who would have thought that that would happen to you two times in a row? That's funny. Like, yeah, that's really funny, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it right now. A lot of sympathy going on here. The next week, you know what's happening here. We have a problem and no one else fully believes it. So I take out the trash Thursday night. True story. Lift up. Tell my roommates that I'm going to go out there first. And they're like, okay, okay, well, we'll take care of you this time, Stephen. Don't worry. So they all go to their rooms. And it's like the scariest militia that you'll ever see. All of a sudden, they all come out with flashlights and BB guns and pellet guns. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what's going on here? Like my suddenly redneck roommates are going to like shoot me instead of a raccoon because that's what's going to happen. Like there's absolutely no way that they hit the raccoon instead of me, like no chance in the world. So they're like, we'll stand on the porch, not down by the trash can on the porch and we'll shine our flashlights so that you can see it'll be fine. You'll be fine. And we'll take care of the raccoon if it does anything like, oh, great. Thanks. Appreciate it. So I go down there, and I'm banging that thing against the wall. Of course, I'm shaking it. I'm kicking it. Go for an extra 30 seconds longer than absolute necessary. And finally, my roommates are like, just throw the trash away. Goodness, come on. So I pick it up, and I drop it. And as soon as I drop it, it jumps out, runs along my arm, jumps off my shoulder, and guess what happens then? All my roommates scream and run inside. <laughs> Every single one of them. When I finally get in there, like, it was like zombie apocalypse. Like, you're just the first one. You're dead. Sorry, I've seen this movie. You know, you're closest to it. I know how this ends. And all of a sudden, we get inside, and they're like, man, we need to do something about these raccoons. This is serious. Like, yeah, maybe. Maybe we should do something about these raccoons. Thanks, guys. You see what I mean? I think that we have a natural bend to not believe 
until we've experienced it. It's just kind of who we are as humans. Even when it's somebody that we trust. One of my roommates became, was my best man, and I was the best man in his wedding, and he still didn't believe me. Even when it's people we really trust and care about, until we've experienced it, it's just really hard for us to buy in, for us to fully believe what it is that they're putting out there. And our lack of experience of who Jesus is and the way that Jesus affects our life, that he changes our life, can make it really difficult to believe until we've experienced it. And then suddenly everything begins to change. We struggle to believe what we have not experienced. But then when we see who Jesus is and we realize how different he is, all of a sudden things change for us. And that's what happened here with these people who listened to him teach and then saw him act. In verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. This word authority comes from the same word in the original Greek as the word author. And I think Mark's telling us something specific by choosing these words. He's telling us that Jesus had original authority. He didn't just teach in a more interesting way than everybody else did. He didn't just tell good stories that the other teachers and rabbis didn't know about. He didn't just explain it in fun ways. Those that heard him teach and then saw him pray, saw what happened as a result of his prayers, realized that something was different, that he was teaching in the way that an author would explain the purpose in the story behind what it was that they were writing, why they wrote it in that way, what the impact that they were hoping to have on the reader's lives as they were reading it. He was telling his original content. He was explaining it to them. Jesus was explaining his story, his original work. And all of a sudden their eyes were open because they had experienced it. And there was an important difference between what Jesus said and what the other teachers and leaders who had come and gone did. Tim Keller is a pastor and he says this, Jesus is not just someone with authority and power to tell you what needs to be done. He has power and authority to do what needs to be done. And then he offers it to you as good news. Other teachers just tell you nice things and then say, go do it. Jesus did it. He did what he was telling us to do. And then he offers it to us and he gives it to us because it's his story, it's his work. He has the original authority over it all. And so as we come to an end this morning, how has the reality of who Jesus is, how has your belief in Jesus affected the way that you live your life? How has it affected your expectation of him? We all have expectations of the things that we think Jesus can reasonably do and the things that we think that Jesus cannot reasonably do. That's just kind of natural for us as humans. And I think today that we're invited to address the second list, the list of things that we worry that Jesus doesn't actually have the power to do in our lives and in the lives of those that we care about. The things that if we're honest, we hold on to simply because they just seem too large. They don't seem like things that we can easily give up on our own. Things like money problems marital issues, family relationships that have gone south, emotional and psychological issues 
that just seem kind of uncontrollable, that we, we can't get a hold on. Addictions. Things like illnesses that the doctors can't explain why you have or even what it is. And it just keeps holding on to you. Grief over people we love that we've lost that we can never get back. All of those things loom so large in our lives. We're so aware of them consistently in our lives. They seem to be too much. Things that we're afraid that Jesus will not have authority over, not because we don't believe in him, but simply because we're just too aware that they're powerful. And we're slightly afraid that Jesus isn't powerful enough. Over the course of this series, as we look at the story of Jesus and Mark, I think we're being invited to give these things to Jesus, to give them up. In the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien wrote that the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. If you come under the healing hands of the true king of Jesus, I can promise you that things will change. You will know that reality once you've experienced it. It may not be instantaneously all better completely, but you'll be very aware that somebody with power and with authority is doing something in your life when that happens. Once you've experienced Jesus, nothing will be the same. So I think our invitation is simply this. Are you ready to let Jesus be greater than whatever it is? Fill in the blank in your own life. Because we all have those things. The worship team wants to come back up. In your bulletins, if you have a bulletin, hopefully you do, uh, there's a little card in there. Uh, if you don't have a bulletin, we have some cards in the back that you can grab in a minute. And here's what I'd like you to do. The card says, in my life, Jesus, I need you to be greater than, and then it gives you a space to write it out. I want to just invite you to, during worship today, pray about whatever that thing is. I don't want you to write your name on there. Um, I want you to write what it is that you need Jesus to be greater than in your life. The thing that looms too large that you're afraid he's not actually greater than in your life and write it on there, whatever it, could, whatever it is for you. And uh, after you write it out, just take it, there's a box in the back on a table by the window, and drop it in there at some point, whether it's during worship or just when you're walking out, whenever it is. And what we're going to do with this is we're going to take it and pray for those things over the course of this sermon series. So we want to just be praying with you that Jesus will move that those things that you're worried that he's not actually more powerful than, that he can't actually have control over, that he'll do something in those over the next couple of months. So take the card, write out whatever it is, don't include your name, and drop it in the box. And let's be praying together. And I just really think that Jesus wants to do something in our lives and in us as a church that those things that we struggle to give up to him, that he's wanting to take those and to just do some real solid acts of his kingdom changing. Him bringing healing in a variety of ways, bringing freedom, bringing a deeper awareness of who he is. And I encourage you just to let that be a sacred space as you pray about that this morning.
The worship team is going to lead us in a couple of songs, but will you stand and let's pray together as we transition. Holy Spirit, come. We just thank you, Father. I thank you, Jesus, that you are powerful, that you do have authority. And I just pray this morning over the things that are popping into our heads that we're thinking about, that we're saying, yeah, I believe in you, Jesus, but I also believe in the power that this thing has in my life. Help us to be willing to give those up to you today. Help us to be willing to allow you to come and to change things. Let us experience your change. Let us experience who you are, your authority and your power. We just give it up to you. I ask that you will come and meet with us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.